Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder. This week on the Veterinary Viewfinder, we've got pet obesity expert, Dr. Alex German, who's got some breaking news on upcoming research in pet obesity. You don't want to miss this one. There is a banker with a motor car. The little children loving him behind his back. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, we are going to tackle a topic that touches us all. And of course, we've spoken about pet obesity so many times on this podcast, but this week, we've got a rare treat. We've got one of the true pioneers, one of the true innovators, one of the true experts and leaders in the field of the biology of obesity, Dr. Alex German. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation today. As always, I am your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And if you work in the veterinary profession, there's a good chance you have come across the work of Dr. Alex German. I've known Alex for many, many years. We both have sort of had this crusade and the fight against pet obesity. But a little bit about Alex before we get into his story. Uh, he graduated from veterinary school, University of Bristol, in 1994, uh, and which time he went straight into mixed animal practice, which we want to find out about that experience. After two years working in mixed animal practice, he decided enough was enough and wanted to pursue his PhD. So he went back to the University of Bristol, where he then became board certified later in small animal and turtle medicine. And this guy has done much of the research that has influenced the way I view obesity in animals, and he's certainly influenced so many of you listeners, so it's a real pleasure. So Alex, thanks for being here today. Thanks very much, Ernie. It's great to be here. Always a pleasure for us to have these conversations, I find. Yeah, well, listen, I, you know, Alex, I've known you and respected you for so many years on a personal and professional level, but before we jump into all those things that we want to talk about around obesity, let's rewind it. Tell me about where you grew up and how you wound up in veterinary medicine to begin with. Wow, that's a hell of a long time ago. <laughs> I don't remember all the details, but I guess like many um, people who enter the veterinary profession, there's not a ne necessarily a particular thing. Um, I guess I just always wanted to, I just wanted to be a vet. I always wanted to sort of help animals and the sort of corny sort of thing that you would say um, when you, when you, you know, when you have your, your interview at vet school. Um, but it was, I guess it was just a, a passion that came from, uh, my childhood and um, uh, you know some of the early experiences with uh, we had a sort of a, a friend uh, who was who was a vet and, and and seeing a bit of stuff like that but it's just one of those things you, you know you want to do it but you can't explain why and you kind of grew up in James Harriet territory am I right it, it had its moments yeah I mean it was <laughs> it's it's certainly not nearly as built up as, uh, as as places in the states I'd have to say um, not completely out in the sticks um, we did have running water. Uh, <laughs> but it was all right, yeah. <laughs> so you're growing up in this bucolic land of England, and you you know you have this passion early, and, and we've talked about this on the podcast so many times before, where it seems like so many people of our generation, Alex, sort of were born this way, and some of the, the younger generation maybe found their path later, which is always an interesting thing. But, but you go to Bristol, you graduate, uh, I think, with honors, right? I mean, you were like a stellar student back then. And then you wound up going into mixed animal practice. Tell me how that happened. Um, I guess I, I guess I work I work quite hard at vet school. I think everyone has to work hard. And I remember I, I made myself a promise when I graduated that that would be the end of study. 
I would never need to study again. Um, and I wanted to do MIT's practice. It was actually a, 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 what I call the Fox, foster practice, a practice I'd sort of spent some time at anyway. It was a great place, nice bunch of pe people, and I learned a lot. Um, and I guess that was my inspiration, not having to study again. That's why I did mixed practice. Um, of course, it didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and so you're working with horses, cows, goats. I mean, that sort of, I mean, again, I'm, yeah. I'm picturing young Alex as a young James Harriet. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So you basically, I, I did a bit of everything. Um, we, you know, we, so I was carving cows. Uh, we, you know, doing um, colics in horses. Um, we even actually were looking after a local safari park. So I got to go there and, wow. you know, did various things with giraffes and um, wolves. Obviously, veterinary related things. It, it was great. It was good. Um, the thing I felt I lacked was, um, I guess, I was getting good at doing a lot of stuff okay and acceptably getting by and that's I think what you do in practice you learn to sort of cope and use common sense but at the same time I felt I was losing the cutting edge um, and that's really I guess the inspiration for heading back and, and studying a PhD. Yeah and obviously you have an amazing intellectual curiosity but let me ask you real quickly also while we're in we're in this mixed animal practice did you feel some of the pressures you know the the anxieties the frustrations that so many mixed animal practitioners speak of today did you experience any of that? Um, absolutely I, th I think um, and in many respects I think it helps you when you then pursue an academic career and now I'm teaching vets to actually see the, the challenges that actually vets on the ground face you know you have limited time you very frequently have have limited funds that you're dealing with so you're always trying to make judgments and compromises you know you, the vet schools say this is how you should do it but there is a reality there and, and I think all vets face that and, and to, be, to be quite honest actually you know whilst technology changes the tools of the trade I guess are more advanced now than they were 25 years ago when I went into practice but even so I think those challenges in terms of juggling what you should do with what you're able to right. I think it, it just it was in sharp focus then it is now yeah that's fascinating so you go back uh, to Bristol which was your alma mater um, and you decide to pursue a PhD and tell us a little bit about how you decided to pursue a PhD and uh, and what you actually did your thesis in um the, I guess that again it, it was a it was a chance thing I came across an advert in uh, uh, the veterinary record, which was sort of one of the main, um, you know, veterinary journals of the time, and it just sort of caught my eye. It was it was on gastroenterology, and it was just um, something appealed to me about actually doing a bit of study and just trying to learn a bit more. And, and I guess it was the, you know, the, the thirst for knowledge and discovery, which was what I promised I wouldn't do. <laughs> right, it's addictive a bit. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess it is. And the trouble with it is that if you're a good scientist, you create questions, not answers. Um, right. So it'll never be done. <laughs> well, now, uh, so you're 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 pursuing this PhD, and at some time you meet uh, the love of your life. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, <laughs> it's probably the thing that made it's, you the best <laughs> possible uh, version. Know, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, it was actually something. You know, we 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 met when um, I was uh, in the first year of my PhD. Alison uh, was was actually in final year. But we both do remember a time that we, we were both at vet school when I was in final year, I think she was in first year, where we, we saw each other almost a, not quite across a, a, a crowded room, but I think it was, a, um, it was a, one of the fields, <laughs> at the veterinary field station. And so we both remember seeing each other and thinking, oh, yeah, you know, as, as you do, but never 
never, I guess, um, never met at that point. So, so maybe there was an aspect of destiny. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I would say you got the good end of the deal, my friend, because she is an amazing woman and mother and veterinarian in her own regard. Oh, yeah. I guess I'm, I'm lucky. You know, <laughs> I like to think so. So then you get board certified in internal medicine, but uh, you don't, you're just not satisfied being an internist. You're not just satisfied being that board certified specialist. You decided to take on a different path, which led you to do more research. So tell us a bit about when you finish up your PhD. Now you've got to pursue this final board certification, and then you landed squarely in the world of research. So, how did that path happen? Um, I, I wouldn't ever say I came through my life choices with a particular plan. <laughs> I, and, and perhaps most people don't. You know, I know a lot of these people think, oh, it all began here and that. And it, for me, it's, it was, a, I guess, a series of, of chance events and a lot of luck along the way. Mm. So I'm, I was at Bristol and the research I'd done during my PhD was very much gastroenterology and immunology focused. Um, and you, you, when I moved to Liverpool, and, that, and this was, I guess, maybe one of the big drivers for, for focusing on obesity, um, really there's a, there's a rule if you do research, which is you're only as good as the people you work with. Right. And I wanted to carry on with the gastroenterology interest, but there simply wasn't the expertise, the similar expertise I had at Bristol. So I guess I looked around. Um, and at the time, I was fortunate because at Liverpool there was a very great, strength in obesity within the medical school and, and, and a guy called Paul Trahan, right. Professor Paul Trahan, who amazing guy focused on adipose biology um, and adipocytes um, and he helped me a lot. So I guess it was the, the, the initial inspiration for getting into the field um, of obesity was 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 convenience because I needed a, a different topic. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And one of the things we focus on a lot in the podcast is this idea of why not? You know how a lot of times we see people at, at where they are in their journey and think that it was destined to be that way, just like you mentioned. But often it's seeing the things around you and saying, "Why not?" And can I have passion for that? And is that something that can kind of drive me forward? And it sounds like that kind of matched your story. I, absolutely, yeah. And and what was interesting was um, I was saying, "Why not?" Um, and actually, a lot of my colleagues at the time were saying, "Why? Why? Why the hell would you bother?" I mean, it, it's got to be one of the most boring topics out there, and you know what? And hey, it's easy, isn't it? You know, just feed feed less and exercise more. And, and only I'm sure you've heard that a hundred times from at a lot least. of ignorant people. Yes. <laughs> so yes, I mean, I think that was it. The you know that that was really what got me into it. Um, but I, I guess throughout, whilst I, I like to think of myself as a scientist, I always realise that at heart I'm a, I'm a clinician. I, I want to treat animals, make them better. Um, again, that's that corny thing that, I, that, that, that got me interested in vet in the first place. And um, and so I guess a lot of the focus of, of, I guess, what I did with moving forward was was trying to actually look at more of the clinical angle and, and the management of obesity and, and hopefully giving some information which, which vets can find useful. Yeah, so you're actually going along the path of what is burning in my head right now because when you said feed less, exercise more, that's exactly what we hear in veterinary clinics all the time, and we know that that's not enough. And so, how are you having that conversation with veterinarians who are resisting you? Kind of, how did you continue down that path? Because it is hard sometimes to convince that there are better ways and more involved disease processes behind obesity that we've got to be looking for. Um. Yeah. I I guess the thing is, how am I doing it? Part of the, the question there, um, if if I may, 
sounds like I've I've solved that problem. I've I've got all the answers for convincing <laughs> the the vets who frankly are in denial um, of the problem <laughs> problem right. we've got. And and actually, to be quite honest, what we deal with, and, and maybe we can get into this much more as we talk, is a is a prejudice of I wouldn't say all vets, but a cohort of vets, and particularly a lot of older vets, not really believing that this is a true topic and and i use that term prejudice deliberately because that that's what it is it's something which is in ground it's often you know poorly thought out that the, the the rationale for having the prejudice isn't clear but the challenge we face is that if someone's got a prejudice that ain't going to change it ain't going to change quickly um, and partly i guess why i like being in academia is that really the people i'm interested in talking to are, are maybe not those with the prejudice so much but those who we can change the minds of you know students for example who are going to be the vets of the future really trying to get them to, to take up the baton um, looking forward um, and again it is it, it is to do with telling them the science um, as you hinted the fact that there's a lot more to obesity than it being a cosmetic issue it is truly a disease and uh, Ernie and I ag agree with this um, uh, and, and I, I think really just trying to get people to take it seriously. Do you think there's any overlap from the human field where, you know, there's kind of this perception that, oh, well, if we shame people who are overweight, somehow that might contribute to them losing weight, which I, I believe this, the evidence suggests is actually counterproductive. And do you think some of that shame and those emotional issues are, are really playing a role uh, in veterinarians feeling comfortable having these conversations? Um, I, I think I think you, 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 it's, you're dead right that there's a real challenge surrounding communication of the topic and how we frame that question and frame the discussion. I guess with both you know the clients who who, who have animals with obesity um, and and also I guess you know veterinarians who who, who may have those prejudices. Um, I think you, you're dead right that that shaming people about obesity. So if we were to say your your dog you know, your dog is obese, your dog is fat, you've got to do something about it. That's not going to work for the majority of people. In fact, it could actually have a, a counterintuitive effect. So I think we do have to be um, more careful in the language we choose. So that communication is very sensitive. But by the same token, we do have to try to get across the fact that we're dealing with a really serious problem here. Um, and so I think you've got to try and draw that balance. Yeah. And this weight bias issue, Cindy, is real. I mean, you know, we've spoken about it on this podcast, you know, Alex and I, this is one of the main emphasis we have when we speak and write. Uh, you know, I started reshaping and reframing the conversation around obesity toward inflammation, chronic inflammatory state specifically. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm now trying my darndest to move the discussion towards it as a disease state. So you're right, weight bias is real. The language you use is important. And Alex, I, I also argue one other point that that maybe bears, you know, bringing out, and that is the fact that when we're looking at the solutions and the problems, we have to look at how we get funded in the research world. And so if you're looking for the solution to be in the food bowl, then of course, you know, many of the food manufacturers start to do research around how we can change nutrient formulation. You know, uh, there's lots of tricks we can play with the food, but sometimes that leaves out the more deeper physiological you know, issues. I mean, I'm thinking on the human side now where they've completely pivoted away from nutritional composition and formulation. And really now they're saying, okay, what's going on at a microbiome level? What's happening hormonally? What are the genetic influencers? You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I think there is a lot more to the science than, um, than essentially just being about, you know, calories in, calories out. Um, calories in, calories out, if you balance it right, will actually help to solve the problem. But yes, 
I think for the longer term, it's it's making sure that we we do understand the fundamentals. As you say, microbiome. It's also what the adipose um, tissue cells are actually doing, and they're very complex physiology. I'd have to say we're really only scratching the surface yeah. in the veterinary field. We can learn a lot from the human field, but by the same token, you know, that th there's a lot to learn, and I, th I think we just have to keep plugging away and, and just trying to get answers as far as we can. Well, Alex, one of the things, too, that many people aren't familiar with is how you have championed veterinary nurses. Uh, I mean, your story is replete with how much you respect and recognize your veterinary support staff. So tell me a little about how that happened, because that's unusual to see in clinical researchers. And, and I mean, but yet you have been incredibly outspoken about the supporting the veterinary nurses. I, I think that, to be honest, they have for for too long have have borne the burden of, of managing obesity quite frankly with with many vets who, who couldn't care less right. um, you know and, and I think that probably ref was reflected the fact that whenever I gave talks the vast majority of the audience were always veterinary nurses um, uh, and you know and, and and the vets just stayed away mm -hmm. you know, they, they wanted to fix fractures they wanted to save lives great but they just weren't interested in what I, I believe was a fundamentally important thing. So I guess I, th a lot of it came from the fact that I realised that the, the champions of the of the subject that I was interested in were, were the veterinary nurses. Um, I've also been very, very fortunate to work with some, some brilliant veterinary nurses in my time, um, most notably um, the two veterinary nurses who've helped me run our weight management clinic at um, the University of Liverpool, and that's Shelley Holden, who, who, who worked with me for, for about 10 years, and now um, an amazing uh, vet nurse called Georgia Woods, who has just brought a different dimension to what we can do. Um, I don't know what it is. They've got a different way of thinking. They've got, uh, it, but I, I think they, they get this topic um, and, and actually have taught me quite a lot, you know, amazed. And Becky, I'm wondering, I know in, in my practice, I find that clients have a lot of challenges sometimes implementing that, you know, feed less, uh, exercise more strategy. But I, I suspect sometimes that um, my veterinary nurses or veterinary technicians may be hearing even more about those challenges. Uh, do you hear about those those obstacles from clients? And, and what are the common things that that you guys hear about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've said it probably, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times that clients often open up to technicians and support staff in the rooms a little bit more comfortably. I think they feel a little less judged or, you know, it's, it's a safer place. And I also think we sometimes take the time to initiate those conversations more frequently. A lot of times we're in there kind of having the conversation of weight, when we we get on the scale and we go in the room and can kind of mention that a few pounds have been put on since last year. So um, I think we often get involved in that conversation. And so it's really important for the whole team to have a cohesive message. And I love this conversation with Dr. German because I feel like it's an empowering conversation to, to one, understand that this is a great role for support staff to play, but two, we have got to have this conversation with our clients. We've got to help to educate them, make them aware, and find better ways than walk more, eat less, because there are better options. And also maybe talk to them about the disease processes that could be involved and that it's important to have those conversations with their vet. Yeah, and, and Becky, that's a great point. And one of the tools that I think is emerging that, that Alex, you had a heavy hand in developing are growth curves. And I'd like for you to talk a little bit about this process. This has been years in the making. You know, I, I just, I want you to explain a little bit about why this is so important. I mean, I'm chomping at the bit as you can hear, but explain why this is so important and how it's going to help us and 
our veterinary nurses do a better job at preventing obesity. Yeah, um, you mentioned the P word there. Uh, <laughs> and, and I guess that's um, over the, the years that I've been working on obesity, I, I, I've been running a specialist weight management clinic. And I guess we wanted to, you know, cure all pets of obesity. And, you know, we, we, we do very, very well. We know we succeed in a bunch of cases, but we fail in a lot. Right. And I guess I, I realized that actually failure was as, as common as success Absolutely. in my hands. And that's with what I felt was the best I could possibly do. And it therefore, again, comes back to what we were talking about in, um, you know, earlier in, in primary care practice, it's even more challenging. Um, and I, it got me to realizing, actually, to be quite honest, we shouldn't be focusing on treatment. We should be focusing on prevention. The challenge we face is that the problem with obesity starts very young, and it does so in all species. So you look at, at, at kids, and sadly, if a child is overweight at about 18 months of age, just 18 months of age, there's a high likelihood they're going to be overweight for the rest of their life. Um, and that is a very, very sad fact. It starts incredibly early. So if we really want to prevent this problem, what we actually have to do is be recognizing the risks of uh, those that are at risk at an early, early stage. And that, I guess, was what got me interested in, in growth charts. Um, I think the other thing that brought, <laughs> brought ch growth charts home was I had had my two girls um, and we were given these charts in, in the book that uh, we got and, um, and started following them. And I guess that got me into to, to looking at what they were and why, and, and I guess pro, um, provoke the development of charts um, for, for dogs, which I can tell you a bit more about. Yeah. And Alex, you're absolutely right. I mean, you and I have, we've been having this discussion for years. You know, I used to always sort of joke that I could tell you if a cat was going to be obese by nine months of age, all I needed was two data points. You probably remember those conversations and I still have them uh, when I lecture because all I really need to see is what does that curve, what's that inflection look like on that cat? Because by nine months of age, they're pretty much on their way to, to creating a problem or not. And so you then did some very, very robust research. You've come up with these growth curves that are, are, are quite, frankly, phenomenal, and they're going to be an, an essential tool moving forward. So tell, tell us a bit about where we are in that process. I know you have it in the UK. When can we expect it in the US and Canada? So bring me up to speed. Yeah, I mean, the, I guess basically the development of them was very similar to the, um, the, the, the childhood uh, growth charts that, that people have. So they were developed with a large set of data, which were from normal dogs so effectively it maps the growth of normal dogs and healthy dogs those that were in ideal weight um, effectively what you have is a series of uh, of five uh, size categories for dogs uh, male and female for those um, and essentially as a veterinarian you you basically pick the appropriate chart and you just go ahead and, and you monitor you can download the charts free of charge we can maybe give the the link um, separately for those so actually worldwide they are available for use now free of charge if you download them um, in the UK we're slightly ahead of, um, of, of, the, of the US um, in that there is a, a pack that comes with them so you can actually get paper copies and a little folder which are very very similar to what um, are used for parents with their with their, their kids so there's a little bit more um, in terms of the way of tools but essentially all the information um, can actually be available online for veterinarians to use um, in terms of using them, they're dead simple it's you, you mentioned two 
points is all you need and and and, and as soon as you've got more than one point you start mapping um generally speaking we would say you go um, monthly till about six months of age and then every three months you get some um, points from there and what you're actually looking at is the trajectory of that animal's growth that dog's growth relative to what the would be expected in a typical population um, and so you're you're essentially comparing it with the the, the the curves on on each of the individual charts um, if they're growing too rapidly you see that because they start crossing um, the lines on the on the chart and, and that's really one of the intervention points that you would you would you would pick up on one of the things that gets me really excited at the idea of these charts and it kind of circles back to where we talk about prevention is it is easier to talk about obesity as a preventative instead of a reactive measure so when you know your puppy isn't obese and we can talk about it as we definitely don't want to get here i think it is an easier place to start from with our clients and get them thinking about it earlier and the other thing i love about these growth chart points is that I think from a technician standpoint or a nurse standpoint and a practice standpoint, it helps us build that relationship and see our clients back in, which is what we know we're missing. It's that huge gap of, of after that, you know, rabies vaccine or neuter where we don't see them for six to nine months and it, and it really loses our relationship. So I think utilization of these growth charts gives us a visual point of a talking point and a relationship building point. So I think this is a really exciting thing practices need to embrace. I, I would certainly agree with that. Um, yeah, I know Ernie um, has long sort of held this uh, this view of the gap year, which, which essentially is the time from second vaccination of the puppy course through to the first booster vaccination, where and unless the, the dog is being neutered, you don't see them. Um, and that's an influential time. It's an influential time in the development of the puppy, but also development of often a, a new owner with a new puppy. Um, if our, us as vets and vet te technicians are not speaking to our clients and giving them good guidance at that point, where are they getting that information from? Right. You know, it's going to be the, the spotty teenager in the pet store um, <laughs> who's maybe had half an hour's nutrition, you, you know, uh, experience. It may be the, you know, the, 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 the local... Um, uh, the guy down the end of the street who had a dog once or right. perhaps, you know, shock horror, a breeder. You know? right, right. Um, <laughs> and, and I think you're right. You know, what, one of the things we've got to do is we've got to connect with our with um, our um, our patients and our owners about preventative care early on. Um, and the charts will do that, say, because you can, you know, if you see them monthly till six months and then every, every, every three months, you can be talking nutrition, you can be talking so many other things at that time. And I don't know about anybody else, but uh, I, I have a eight month old right now. And when I look at those charts, it, it, it is really helpful to kind of look at those numbers. Sub subjective measures are so tough. And when I look at that and say, oh, you know, I almost want to brag sometimes about those numbers, right? <laughs> like, oh, my baby's in the 75th percentile or whatever. Um, so so it's definitely really helpful to kind of uh, for us and, and hopefully owners will relate to that uh, from their personal experiences, too. Although the one of the criticisms, Cindy, just so you know, is the fact that uh, and maybe it's just American culture, but we do tend to be competitive on those charts. Right. So, so <laughs> the question is then, I, do we I, actually yes. lead towards people? You know, well, I want to be in the 95th percentile when the reality is they should probably be happy down in the 50th percentile. Right, right. <laughs> and it's all about matching up, right? And like, what's our, our body mass index and things like that. So um. yeah, and, and if I I mean, I can pick up on that in that when 
the original British charts were created, the the 50th centile line, which is obviously a line where 50% of the, the individuals are below at any one point, was was in bold. Um, and actually the two outward and inward ones were as well. And people did feel that. They either felt that 50 was normal. It was like a pass mark, um, you know, at school. <laughs> right. Or you wanted to be 100%. Right. Um, and actually they've deliberately for the new ones which we had in it um the the, the world health organization ones they've actually de-emphasized the 50th centile line deliberately yeah. for that reason because it's actually not where you are but the fact that you're following a trajectory similar right. to those lines yeah so so again it's it's yeah. it's a great tool when used correctly but there is always the potential for abuse so you know it's just like the BMI or the BCS it just it really is who's doing it that make matters but Alex uh, before I let you go I don't want to, to have all hope is lost you and I spend a good deal of our professional career treating obesity. And you are a co-author of a really a foundational study, in my opinion, that looked at different countries and what were the outcomes when we actually took dogs through a weight loss program, you know, well-conducted, you know, well-orchestrated program. Uh, and the results, I think, were very good and encouraging. Maybe can you speak a little bit about that recent publication? Um, yes, so it's, it was a, a global obesity study in dogs, and, and let me tell you, um, you can you can be the first to know that we, we're just um, um, uh, working on a second study on cats. Uh, be be um, writing a manuscript just now on that with some very similar results. They're the both of those together are the largest ever studies done on uh, looking at outcomes of weight management in dogs and cats. Um, Short-term studies, so the, so essentially what we looked at was a 12-week program, um, but we looked in um, countries uh, throughout the world, so um, North America, South America, Europe, and also Asia. We, so, so we were able to actually look at um, you know, how things went in those different areas. And I guess one of the broad out, um, outcomes, which I was very positive about, was that essentially you can get success anywhere. So a similar sort of program which is involving um, uh, controlled uh, weight loss, you know, using obviously diet and, and activity, does actually work in different areas. There are some differences in outcomes in, in different parts, but by and large, in a 12-week um, plan, you can expect somewhere in the region of sort of upwards of about 10% weight loss in both dogs and cats. Um, one of the things that, that I know from some of the other work I've done is that um, success is is a challenge and it gets harder as you go and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of wondering more and more nowadays whether we should actually be selling a 12-week program almost as a you know almost as a unit um, ra rather than sort of focusing on getting a dog or cat to its perfect weight if it's a beast just say let's work for 12 weeks and see what happens um, and so I think if anything that study is one of those things that hopefully right. um, you know goes that way. And I believe some of the human research suggests that um, even mild improvements or even, you know, changing lifestyle to include basic things like more walking every day really seem to have some major health outcomes for people. Do we believe or do we have any data that suggests that that's also the case for pets? Because, again, I think owners sometimes feel like getting to that ideal weight can feel like such a big hurdle and maybe they give up. So so what evidence do we have that some improvement is is good for our pets? I mean, you're dead right that, that that often it's little changes now that they're trying to focus on for from a human perspective, and it's the same for I think for for our veterinary species. Um, one uh, one excellent excellent study um, that was done a few years ago looked at um, outcomes of mobility using 
essentially a, a, a force plate analysis. They actually measured objectively the changes in mobility with weight loss in overweight dogs that had arthritis. Um, and, the, and the figure I always remember from that some study is 6%. 6%. Just 6% is enough to actually see measurable differences. As part of this um, global study that um, Ernie just mentioned, we did also look more subjectively at um, activity and also quality of life. Um, and actually changes were, were very soon within that by the time of the second appointment, which was was often four weeks down the line, they'd lost about three or four percent. Owners were, were at least reporting subjective differences. But certainly for me, six percent is enough to, for me to be happy. And that it changes my my outlook. So if you've got a a, a dog that's six, seven, eight years of age, you know, we, we're not going to get it to, to live a huge amount longer at that time. If it's already got arthritis, we're not going to cure the arthritis. But we know if we can just take a little bit of weight off, 6%, they're going to feel a whole lot better. They're going to have better quality of life. And Alex, that's the really the, the most important part of this discussion is when we, you and I and others, fight obesity, we are actually fighting for improvements in quality of life. We are fighting for improvements in mobility and independence. We're fighting for improvements in vitality and longevity. So these are very, very important fights for us. There are things that we think are worthwhile talking about. And I just want to thank you once again for all your contributions to our profession and to the millions and millions of pets that we love. So thank you, Alex. Thank you. And, and I, before we go, I just wanted to say the same to you because, um, you know, we, we're great friends and we've, you know, we, we, we've grown up on different parts of, of the pond, different sides of the pond. Um, but effectively, we've had the same passion, um, you know, and, and you know, you, you've done a, the, the same thing as I have in, in just a different way. You're you know, every year. You're one of the few people that have essentially <laughs> studied this obesity epidemic and essentially you you call it out. Um, and, and, you know, without having people like you, Ernie, you know, we, we're not going to get this message out. And, you know, thank you very much for the contributions you've made as well. Well, you have been a, a great guest. Again, we will have links to uh, the growth charts and other resources that Alex can, can provide uh, down in the show notes today. But uh, Alex, again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your expertise and just really for a wonderful, wonderful conversation. You've heard what we have to say. Now we want to hear your thoughts. What do you think about pet obesity? Is obesity a disease? Are we doing enough? And what about these growth curves? Can we do better for our pet patients? Get in touch with us on Facebook at Veterinary Viewfinder or on Twitter at Vet Viewfinder and let us know what challenges your clients are facing and what research you'd like to see coming down the line. We'd also love to get your opinions via review. So just get on iTunes and leave us a couple stars or even just a sentence of, of what you think so that we can um, make this podcast even better for you in the new year. And don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of The Veterinary Viewfinder. Until next time. Bye. 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 See ya. It's a clean machine.